Hello, welcome back to Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. We're going to be doing something a little different today. So, about a 2017, I think it was 2017, maybe 18, but either way, a few years ago, I had started up a second podcast. Not sure how many of you actually knew that. Pop Culture Palace Presents. It was kind of a hodgepodge show, more of whatever I was thinking of. Now, for whatever various reasons, it's over now. And most of the content is not really easily available. But there was something on there that I really did like. Um, I did a recording with John Wilson, Brian Zeno, and Blaine Dowler. And we spent a couple hours talking about the different comic book ages. Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, quote-unquote the Modern Age. Debating them, talking about where we thought they ended and began, and what we thought were the defining characteristics of each age. And it's actually one of the things I've done that I'm really proud of. I thought we did a really good job. It was released on that feed over six episodes, about a half hour each. But like I said, they're really not available right now. So I want to put them in a place where, well, they would get more attention, which I think would be this show. So if you heard of them already, you don't have to listen. Uh, We're not going to be doing six episodes. We're only going to be doing it as hopefully just three bunching them up to get, you know, two two at a time together. So I re-edited them, so it's all, you know, got rid of the Pop Culture Palace stuff that refers to, you know, feedback and whatever. But the other thing I did was because I went to listen to them, and wow, they sounded horrible. I mean, my God. Thankfully, here, listen to this. Uh, Anyone else have any thoughts on the Golden Age before we go move on? Uh, do, do you want another? I'm talk... oh, sorry. Go on, John. Do you want to talk about? That's what it sounded like before. Thankfully, my editing skills have gotten a lot better. So what you're going to hear now isn't 100% perfect, but it's way better than it was before. Much more listenable. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. And today we are talking about the different ages of comic books. Most of us have heard of the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age... Although there's always a little bit of muddy confusion about when one ends and one begins. And then also, what comes after the Bronze Age? I mean, has the modern age really lasted 30, 40 years? So we're going to discuss that today. And by we, I mean not just me being crazy, but me with other people. We have, from the host of uh, Bureau 42's podcast, including the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvel Comics Countdown, W. Blaine Dowler. Hey, Blaine. Hello, Al, and others I will not name for fear of spoiling the surprise. <laughs> and for anyone who's listened to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, you will know my next two guests, Brian Zeno. Howdy. And John M. Wilson. It's been ages since I talked to all of y'all. Ah, see what you did there. Ba-dum-bum. Sidekicks in the his house. It's been and, a um, long time. Getting from there to here. <laughs> Since Blaine was worried about splitting, I guess we shouldn't talk about Luke Skywalker being the last Jedi, huh? Oh, thanks, John. Well, that was right in the crawl for Force Awakens, so we're good. No, I know. Yeah. Anyways. Yes. No, now here, my only question is given that we are, uh, John, you and I are Al's sidekicks, 
and uh, on the Resurrections podcast. But now the really uh, important question is, I've known Al longer, but I think you've been podcasting with Al longer than I have. So that leads to the question, which one of us is Dick Grayson and which one of us is Jason Todd? Very important that we figure this out. Can I be the Earth 2 Dick Grayson who wears pants? If pants are that damn important to you, then by all means, I won't stand between you and your pants. That's not something I would ever do. <laughs> oh, Brian, you're such a comfort. I, I try. I try. That's, that's my, that is my role. That is my role. I'm comfortable with it. Pants from Comic Geek Speak, if you happen to listen to this for some reason, please don't take offense. The opinions of John are not the opinions of everyone else on the show. We all like you. <laughs> And just speaking in as the third party advisor, given that the evil person is always the one with the goatee, I'm going to say that Brian is Jason Todd. Okay. Well, that's, that is actually completely fair. Completely fair. I'll go with that. Yes, because obviously John is then Dick Grayson, the master of disguise. <laughs> my, my, my current Skype photo is, is, has a mask on it, so yeah. Oh, was that yours? I couldn't tell. It didn't look anything like you. Right? All the hair on my head fell onto my face. (laughs) So, comic book ages, huh? (laughs) What what brought this on, Al? Actually, I... You. You were talking about it like a few weeks, uh, a month or so ago on Facebook. Oh, yes! And it made me start thinking about it. Because I have opinions about this. That's never good. Making Al start thinking is never a good thing. He knows. (laughs) Yeah, take Brian's advice. He knows this. Like I said, he mm-hmm. knew since college. He knows that's a bad thing. Keep Al occupied. Shiny objects. <laughs> Shiny objects, exactly. Okay, so we'll start back in the beginning. We're going to start with, uh, well, more or less the Golden Age, but we can go earlier if, we, if everyone wants. Now, most people... may, may I suggest a preliminary question, a preliminary discussion point? Oh, sure. Go ahead. What constitutes an age? What do we mean by that? Oh, I didn't think about that. That's good. Mmm, mmm. Okay, uh, we'll let John start with that, since John obviously has some thoughts on that. Go ahead, John. I do! I do! How did you... How, how did you... Imagine that! <laughs> okay, so... Just in case there's, like, one person out there who's never done comics before, uh, we think about the comic book industry, you know, as divided up into certain ages. And, and usually the ages are, like, a really interesting starting point. Maybe a little bit more fuzzy on where they end, because sometimes they kind of trail off. But, um... When I think of a comic book age, I think of a trend in storytelling tropes, a trend in publishing goals, a trend in what kinds of things the industry was doing or starting to do around a certain time. Um, and that is usually not quite a solid starting point, but different places around the same time you can see characters or companies making certain moves in a direction and all in a similar direction that, and that would constitute the start of a new age. Uh, That's my thought. uh, If I may, I would say that's a, that's a good starting point. I always think of them as sort of, uh, the ruling, uh, modus operandi storytelling modus operandi of a certain era. Any, any particular era is going to have the way we do things and let that sit in place long enough and it's going to start to 
break down or repeat itself or just in general get sort of heavy and hoary and uh, old, for lack of a better term. And when people notice this or new blood comes in and it's not like they say it's time for a new age, but certainly, you know, it, we look back at when people felt the old way had outlived its usefulness. Here's the new way. So, yeah, it's 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 a way, if you will, as much as an age, it's a way. Blaine? Yeah, I would agree with that. The one element I would add is that I think some of what shifts is changes in the actual publication and production technology. Mm. You know, if you get a, a significant difference in the size of the book you're carrying, it feels like a different thing. Right? If you see some major upgrades to the way that colors can be represented, again, it's going to start to feel like a different thing. Mm-hmm. So I get the creative and artistic choices that come into it are paramount. But, you know, when you can suddenly represent another 65,000 colors on the page, it's going to give the artists more choices and a wider variety of tones and subtleties, which, you know, then will allow the storytelling to change because that's there to support it. So, like, digital coloring is probably something that's going to come up later in the conversation, then, because that was a big change in the way comics started to look. Uh, Jesus, yeah. here I thought he was talking about Baxter paper. Uh, <laughs> that too. No, no, no. No, that makes sense, actually. <laughs> I like that. All right, well, before we get to the Golden Age, I want to briefly go over one to the ages from beforehand. So, but briefly, because they're really not going to be as germane as the other stuff is, but has anyone ever heard of the Platinum Age and or the Victorian Age of comics? Let's start with Blaine. Uh, I'm aware of those. I, the, the, the first age I'm aware of, of sequential art would be cave drawings. Oh. The Stone Age, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, exactly. The Neolithic Age. <laughs> mm-hmm. With, so okay. to, on this episode, we're going to get up to um, 1, 000, what, 1500 BC, and hopefully right, the next right. episode we'll get to, you know, the uh, common errors. The superhero <laughs> comics of the Roman Empire, next on Pop Culture Palace. <laughs> yes. Who needs 1938 AD when you have 1938 <laughs> BCE? Exactly. exactly. Well, you should have seen what Asterix was like before the French rebooted him. that french revolution had such a wreck on my continuity too i was gonna do so many things (laughs) all the leaders of all my teams got beheaded (laughs) and then the new leaders got beheaded and then next and then going to and then going to that then going to the 10-day week completely messed with the shipping schedules that was just right off the rails Uh, and trying to get your book shipped on time in Thermidor was worst month. Ever. <laughs> and what month am I supposed to put on there? If you, are, we, are we doing the Julian calendar thing now or not? I mean, I just I need to know: is this Julian calendar thing happening? Well, actually, it's funny because, in in all seriousness, when you look when when you start to read like historical articles and you look at the difference between old style and new style dates, the uh, Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar, um, the the offsets between the dates at the times that like the calendars overlap in world history are not entirely dissimilar to the offsets between cover dates and shipping dates. It's like two to three months. Yeah, something like that. So I actually made a good joke. Wow! Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last one of the of the show, kids. I promise. 
You should have seen what it was like way back when they were numbering those Roman comics because, you know, they only (laughs) added the Roman numerals above 50 and like. Well, that's that's where that's where the tradition of celebrating um, milestone issues came from, because in the ancient Roman times, it's when they got to stop using so many damn letters on the covers of the of the issues. (laughs) Every time you go back down to one letter, it's one letter. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just so such a relief. It looked so good. It was like celebrate celebration time. Yeah. And when it got to the point that you couldn't actually fit the number across the comic, that's when they rebooted with a new number one. Right, exactly, right. exactly. These are all ancient, ancient traditions. Yeah, we don't blame anyone, Carly. We blame the Romans. It's all Caesar's <laughs> fault. In general, for a lot of things, yes. At two, Ale. <laughs> if I was going to pick which one of us was going to kick it off the rails first, Blade, you are not the choice. Awesome, awesome move. I am very pressed and proud. That was awesome. <laughs> and I, for one, am relieved it wasn't me. For once. So, Al, okay. to, uh, to wrestle this back into into oh. its cage, um, Al, uh, uh, enlighten us somewhat uh, as, as a starting point, Platinum and Victorian. Yeah, so I was doing research for this, so I'd have some clue what I was talking about, and apparently... No, That's a start. Yeah, I know, for once. <laughs> well, that makes one of us. Now, I've heard, I'd heard of the Platinum Age before, which is the era before what's considered the golden age when comic books were basically starting to form and become, you know, become what they are. But apparently there's also what some people have been called on some sites to look at the Victorian age, starting with the adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck by Rudolph Poplar, which was published in 1842 in New York. Oh my word. Actually it was first published in 1837 in Europe, but the, British version was reprinted in New York in 1842. It's the first known comic to be published here in this country. It was like 40 pages, 6 to 12 panels per page. I mean, they didn't have word balloons, but it was like uh, Family Circus or Farside with the captions on the bottom. And apparently this guy and some other people did do some other comics in that time period. There's not really much known. Most I, I wasn't able to find, and I guess most of them haven't been rediscovered yet, but there were comics pre-Civil War. Hmm. So now, by comics, do you mean sequential storytelling, or do you mean more along like the sort of Thomas Nast one-panel sort of commentary type things? I am not a hundred percent sure. There was a, okay. I wasn't able to find enough information on that. Um, based on the fact that it's called Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck, I'm wondering if maybe it was a sequential story. But either way, okay. I, I know that um, caption cartoons definitely were a thing in newspapers before. Um, before you know, comic strips started happening, and you had seven. Like you mentioned, Yellow the Kid earlier. Yes, mm-hmm. was that his name? The Yellow Kid. The Yellow um, Kid. The Yellow, Yellow Kid. Hogan's kid. Alley. Right. So that predates our superhero stuff by a while. I I have a weird time calling that era the Platinum Age, though, because the idea of the Golden Age is that like this is a heyday. This is a this is a height. Yeah. This is a time yeah. and. Theoretically, things can go downhill after that. And I, I don't really feel like – I feel like the comic book and comic storytelling art of the mid-early 30s and earlier is not a height. I, it's like a protoform. Well, I would actually disagree with that slightly because we're talking – I mean it's it's interesting – 
that we often discuss Action Comics number one is deservedly, obviously, a landmark. I think all four of us would agree on that. And it kicked off some, it kicked off a certain continuity tra- uh, tradition with some continuity that we are still discussing and enjoying, all of us enjoying today. But that style, that specific style of sequential storytelling with word balloons and action and a sort of a pulpy uh, adventure sensibility does predate Action Comics number one. You did have things like Terry and the Pirates, things like uh, Thimble Theater. Um, going back into the 20s at the very least. I mean, obviously, Hogan's Alley and the newspaper strips that started in the in the 1890s were a very different thing. But I think what set action comics apart um, and made it the start of the tradition that we are really uh, talking about today is the fact that it was that sort of adventure storytelling that had previously existed only in newspaper strips and as part of a larger product, a newspaper, isolated, packaged on its own, sold as its own headlining thing, and thus was worthy of its own attention and wasn't just a sales supplement. So I would say that Action Comics wasn't the start of the tradition, storytelling-wise, but it was certainly the start way of presenting it. We had comic books... A little bit before Action Comics one, because I know Scribbly, who uh, a Sheldon Mayer creation, who had later become the source of, of you know Red Tornado and some other well-known characters, as well as being a character in his own right, he predates Action Comics one by a year or so. Um, Nashville was doing things back as early as 1935, but you're right. We have a lot of comic sequential storytelling stuff going on for a while before mid 30s when the comic book starts to become a thing. Mm-hmm. And and Superman was certainly taking advantage of a, of a new type of storytelling rather than just cashing on something that was already well-established. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is true. They were doing stuff before, because, I mean, I was checking to see where it was, and Detective Comics was up to 16 when Action 1 came out. So it wasn't Yeah, but who cares about Batman? Yeah, well, no, yeah. Still no Batman yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you're right in a way, John, because, I mean... It's called, I mean, I've seen in most places, whenever I've seen that Eric Hall talked about it, it's called the Platinum Age, but you're right, it's not always, I don't know, it might not be, I mean, it still was, a lot of that includes the creation of comics and them coming up with it, so it's not going to be the pinnacle of it. Now, would you have a different name for it, though? Or, I mean, I guess you would, but do you have a different name? I don't. I think that it's the comics industry that existed before the Golden Age, pre-Golden Age comics. Yeah, yeah, that that works. That works. Okay, uh, Blaine, what about you? Yeah, I would. St- I'm not familiar with the ages that came before it, but I would say that the the Golden Age would have begun in the mid to late 1930s when it wasn't just okay. Here now we're binding sequential art for sale. But that was when there was a shift into recurring characters on a regular publication schedule. But still with the freedom so that, you know, creators are only bound by their editors and not some outside entity saying these types of stories are allowed and these ones are not. Right. In theory, they could sell any type of story that their editor and publisher thought that they could find a market for but with these recurring characters. So 
you know, not just the Supermans and Batmans, but others like them where you're going to know that you can go to the store each month and pick up new stories and new adventures with those characters you already know and are familiar with. Hi, I'm Blaine Dowler, host of Bedtime in the Public Domain. In this podcast series, I'll read bedtime stories from books in the public domain. Each weekday, I'll release one chapter or short story from a selected larger collection. Once the entire book is done, I'll also release an audiobook version, including all chapters or short stories, before taking a few days off to prepare the next series. All stories will be from one of the children's categories from the Project Gutenberg website, because they do an excellent job of editing the content to ensure it's in public domain, and I have neither the time nor expertise required to do that myself. Suggestions for the stories that come next are welcome and encouraged. You can find the show at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. All right, so I didn't want to go too much into those previous eras. I just want to do a little bit, which we did, so excellent. So let's get started with the actual first age of comics that most of us think of, the Golden Age. So what I want to know is, what do you consider the beginning of the Golden Age, and why is that the Golden Age? So let's start again with Blaine. Well, yeah, it's kind of a lot of the end of the previous eras where you know we're getting into that point. A lot of the ages you're going to hear from me are... For the most part, they're not going to start and stop at any specific points. There's a couple, but most of the time it's going to be an era. So there's kind of a, a fuzzy border from the pre-golden to the golden age from like, you know, 1932 through that 38, 39 era as they're, you know, realigning themselves and realizing, okay, these aren't just one shots. It's not just like we are putting out a picture book that just has a whole lot of pictures today. But no, this is a dedicated publication that we're going to keep doing on a regular schedule so that each month it's going to be there, kind of like people regularly buy their newspapers or magazines, just monthly instead of daily or weekly because the art takes longer to produce. And like I said, a key point of it is still with the creative freedoms determined solely by your editor and publisher rather than any outside supervisory entity. Right. Uh, Brian? Um, I'm going to, uh, I mean, the easy answer is to start it with Action Comics, number one, mostly because whatever existed before then is almost, I mean, except insofar as it was people working in the same uh, medium, so to speak. If you look at the continuity of the sequential storytelling tradition that, that motivates us, not just that, that we're talking about here, but that motivates us to do these podcasts, to to buy these products every week, etc., etc., etc. I don't think that particular tradition really extends much before Action Comics number one. So that is an important mile marker and i would be tempted to say that but for the for the for the sake of of sounding erudite and um like i know what i'm talking about i'm actually going to go uh back to 1934 uh with uh, famous funnies number one because that was that was the first real comic book i mean they the, a, a book of nothing but comic strips i think i think in that particular one they'd all been printed before in newspapers or wherever this was just a sort of a collected reprint but still the where 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 someone's going to go to the the five and dime 
or to the to the drugstore or wherever and plunk down uh, a shiny dime for a bound magazine uh, with nothing in it but pictures nothing in it but the funny picture pitches you know what i'm saying so i think i'm going to uh put i'm, I'm gonna put my mile marker in uh, uh the summer of 1934 and famous funnies number one okay john well of all the humming and hawing that we're gonna have later in this discussions and, and, <laughs> and i would have i would have thought that this one was the easy one uh this one would have been like the, okay we'll all start here and then moving forward, you might have some discussions or disagreements or whatever. But um, okay, so I'm going to be the wild outlander person and point to that one new book from National Publications called Action Comics. Um, because they have that guy on the cover throwing the car at the rock and scaring all the people. Um, no, um, you, had a, you had comic books before Superman. You had, you had comics before Superman. You had kids buying comics before Superman. <clears throat> but I think the very fast and very steep curve of popularity of Superman took the comics industry by storm to a different level. You didn't have a million people buying one character before that. You didn't have multiple companies emulating what was being done to this extent. And I, I think that although you had the art form before spring of 38, and certainly, they've even uh, Siegel and Schuster have been marking it since '35. So the art form existed at least as long back as that. And you had kids buying the stuff. It was Action Comics number one that launched the golden age of comics, which also made the comic industry very superhero focused. Which nowadays, when you talk about the comics industry, people like synonymize that with the superhero stories which I think is a disservice, especially nowadays, but, but Superman started that, made that happen, made us go in that direction where superheroes were the thing. Uh, if, I, if I can, just this is a theme I'll probably hit on repeatedly going forward throughout the rest of this particular uh, podcast, but especially as we're talking about the golden age, I think it's important in my view of the history of comics that back then... Comics were really just another flavor of pulp magazine. Um, for at least 30 years up until then, you had had these adventure, these cheap adventure pulp magazines, the Argosy. And then uh, you got into the 20s and you had Hugo Gernsback's Amazing Stories. And then even Astounding Science Fiction started in 1930. It was all very much a, hey, we got to turn out a lot of, you know, lurid content adventure stuff stuff that's going to keep uh the kids and the boys and the men giving us their dimes every week and it was very much uh when action comics came out and what had previously been uh the the, the comic strips the funny papers the gag strips of the newspapers when that art form got merged with the pulp storytelling tradition the first real atom bomb to go off in on the on the landscape of of on the pop culture landscape i think john is absolutely right it's action comics number one so you can't overstate that as uh as the point of this um although it does and i'm going to, uh, and actually i'm going to be the nerdy professor frank now and point out that actually i'm pretty sure the first 
comic book to really marry the two uh, threads together was uh, New Fun started in 35, I think. And that was the first one that it had westerns. It had a kind of a, a problematic yellow peril kind of adventure with a Fu Manchu sort of thing going on. But that was, I think, the first real uh, time that the two threads came together and and laid the groundwork f- that that Superman could then get planted in and and spring out of. It was also one of the very first books, maybe the first, but it was at least National's first book to publish all new material, ah, yes, as opposed that, to just bound collections of um, newspaper strips. Important, important, true. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to go real quick. Now, before I... <laughs> Who are you again? No, wait a minute. That's... <laughs> uh, I do agree with Blade a bit uh, in what he said about how... Because for the most part, in researching this, there's no... All, it's very hard sometimes to find a hard and fast, this is where the one age starts and the other age ends. It's always, like you said, it's a little fuzzy. For me, I, at least when, for the, when picking all these ages of when they would end or begin, I kind of went from when it seemed less like the new age, you know, the, the new age was creeping in, as opposed to the tipping point of when the old age was now creeping out. And that, for me, was usually what I would pick as my uh, part of when the one age would end and the next begin. And speaking of the golden age, like John, I went with, as we called it before, the simple answer, action one. Not just because it's the beginning, although it did change that landscape of Olsen bringing in the superhero thing and how that turned out for it. But it seems like, I mean, unless, of course, there's some ones I don't, I'm not aware of, like Only Detective, for the most part, m- majority of the comics were all one-issue stories or like one-time stories. And this is like the beginning of a companies having ongoing characters, whether super or not. This is like the first, this is like the main one where it started really hitting where they would have ongoing characters that you would pick up the books each month for to follow them, as opposed to just following, I like detective stories, I'm going to read detective comics. Because there's detective stuff in there, you now had continuous stories going on. And that obviously changed the landscape a lot. So I go with Action 1 as the beginning of the Golden Age. Uh, Anyone else have any thoughts on the Golden Age before we go move on? Uh, Do another... I'm sorry, go on, John. Do you want to talk about the continuance of the Golden Age and, and like what characterizes that? Before, or do you want to talk about like are we talking about jumping jumping into the next stage already, or what do you want to do? That's actually what I was about to go on to. I, once we got past the what starts the Golden Age, if anyone has any thoughts on what is the Golden Age or what made it the Golden Age for them, uh, let's go. I like to hear Blaine's thoughts because you're. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're yeah. the one who drives the show. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was about to go to Blaine. So. Read in the mind. Good job. Wow. You, were saying, you were saying earlier about like uh, <laughs> stuff like you're, you're coming in from a different perspective than I'm used to, Blade. So I was, I was curious okay. what you thought about. To me, what defines the Golden Age is that part of it is the, the generally the larger format page and the the larger page count. So this is a time when there were, you know, the standard page count wasn't like 18 pages of story in a 30 page book with a cover on it. These were 64 to 96 pages, depending on whether the cover price was 10 or 15 cents. The pages tended to be larger than they were. The content was often outsourced by art studios. So it's much more common knowledge now than it was then. But just because it says by Bob Kane on it, that doesn't mean Bob Kane ever put pencil to paper to produce any panel of that page. Mm-hmm. Right? They often have art studios and hire other artists to ghost in their styles. And that was a pervasive thing in, I think, the Golden Age, where 
you know, creators would come up with a concept, sell it as a work for hire so that, you know, national or all American or, you know, timely, whichever company you sold it to had the rights to that character. But then you would provide them X number of stories with Y number of pages per month for them to be putting out in their publications. And the only real restrictions were again, between the creator and the editors and publishers. So, you know, no outside entities. It's just the publisher said, yes, this is the kind of story we want to publish or no, it's not, you know, aside from the laws from the federal level that apply to every single thing published by anyone at any time. Uh, I think, I think Blaine makes an excellent point about the work for hire nature of it. For me, the golden age as an age golden isn't a particularly, isn't particularly a descriptor. It's more of just, it's a name. It's an, it's, it's for me, it's just a name because uh, full disclosure, I'm not really the, the, the biggest fan of the golden age. Uh, I have all the respect in the world for it. And obviously I understand that the stuff I love to read today could not have existed without what came before. But the actual material of the golden age is often a pretty tough slog for me um, when it comes to actually sitting down and reading it. But I think just to get back to what Blaine was saying real quick, the work for higher nature of it. it, it have any of you read uh, the uh, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, the novel? By Michael Chabin. A while ago, but yes. I've not. That it gives you a real good look. Oh wait, hold on, Blaine. Blaine, have you read it? Uh, no, it's on my to-do list, but not high on a very long list. Okay, <laughs> it, want to make sure. It gives it gives a really good depiction of the on the ground uh, day to day existence of the people doing this. Uh, was like, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there were no creator's rights. Every piece of creativity was signed away to the publisher. So for me, the golden age as an age is the age during which the, the comic stories existed and, and, and started to, to make their way through pop culture history, but they were still subsidiary. They were still just a part of that larger pulp tradition people didn't look at them and say you know wow i love those 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 comic books and we're going to make those comic books a thing it was just they were just this you had your 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 sci-fi mags and you had your comic books and it was all sort of of a piece i don't think i think one of the 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 defining characteristics of the silver age which we'll get to is when there started to be a tension between like these publishers who just needed lots and lots of page count and lots and lots of material every month, any way they could get it. We're going to screw the creators. We're just going to do whatever we can to get this many pages every month. Um, and, and there started to be tension during the Silver Age, but during the Golden Age, there wasn't. It was just like lots and lots of stuff getting churned out and put out. And I think that to me is what the Golden Age seems like as an age. All right, and John. John, you there? Or is this when you take the pee break? I think oh, he's got oh. a mouthful of potato chips right now. That's my guess. <laughs> no, my son was eating potato chips. I, I, oh. I, I, I muted to cough. 
Oh, but, uh, okay, okay. I didn't realize the potato chips that was coming over so loudly. That's okay. But he's done with his bag now. <laughs> um, anyways, I guess it's worth pointing out that the, even the idea of calling this the golden age is not is something that came from decades later. Um, whenever superhero comics had a huge revival. And people who had been reading superhero comics as kids, now they can read all these new superhero comics as 20-year-old, 30-year-olds, and they would look back at this at the old era from from World War II and call that the golden age of comics. Mm-hmm. When when mm-hmm. Brian, Brian has an interesting point that it, the storytelling is, I mean, I do like it for what it is, but it is very different <laughs> than than anything we're used to in many textual and subtextual ways. Um, I liked Blaine's point about the page count because Action Comics 1 has, is a 64-page comic, and I think 60 of those pages are content. You had the front cover and back cover, outside and inside, were non-content pages. You know, of course, you had the image on the front cover. But the inside front cover, the outside back cover, the inside back cover, those were your ads. And all of the internal pages were content. And very quickly it began giving over ad space until it kind of finally settled into a pattern of some 48 to 52 pages. Each issue were content and the rest were ads. To me, what characterizes the golden age is world war two themed stories, lots of superheroes and lots of, lots of sameness of plots. Mm -hmm. You have, Crime, you have um, war. Insurance things. Yeah, just (laughs) you have an idea, you're able to turn out, you know, some number of pages of action and adventure, and you're on to the next thing. And in any one person didn't have to fill a whole lot of pages because each book was an anthology book. Action Comics 1 had, I think, eight different stories in it. And Superman was by far the longest at 13 pages. Yeah, and you rarely Um, had stories that were longer than 13 pages that was yeah, a- marvel did it some with like human torch and stuff but you know the idea is that your your eight-year-old would just have a really long read there it wasn't because they were really that innovative and and, and you know worthy of the length but you know i, I don't want to slag off in the golden age because i do have a lot of fondness for um for the characters for the heroes um there are some characters where i've read every single comic from the golden age that they that they were appeared appeared in I do like the era, but it changed after a while. And I think as the Golden Age went on, after World War II, a lot of the inspiration for stories went away because so many stories were war-themed. And a lot of characters that had been really hot for a while started to fade off until by 1950, you know, five years after the war, this Golden Age thing of comic books is all but kaput. Mm -hmm. Um, Comics are still going, but they're finding new avenues and funny animals. Funny animals are a big thing with, you know, with Disney and everything and Westerns. Westerns are huge. Crime was a huge thing because the comics code hadn't come out yet. Um, so horror comics were also big. Actually, Captain America comics is oftentimes a horror comics with superheroes doing the stories. There's some really weird Captain America comics in the, in the, <laughs> in the golden age run. But as you get toward the golden age, so many characters getting canceled until um, I think Marvel's entire bank of superheroes were gone and DC's entire bank of superheroes were gone with the exception of Batman, 
in Batman and Detective, Wonder Woman in her titled book, her her second book, Sensation, where she started, was gone. Superman was in his title and in action. Superboy was in his title and in adventure. He had World's Finest with the Superman and Batman stories. And all the other superheroes were gone. Um, Green Arrow and Aquaman still existed because they had backups in adventure. But the superhero thing that Superman had started faded down to a, a low roar. Um, and I think that's when you start to see the, the wind going out of the sails of the golden age of comics to get to the 1950s. And some people call that the atomic age, but to me, I just call that the, the, the dead back end of the golden age. I don't know if y'all disagree. Yeah. yeah, no, I would agree with that. I like atomic age just cause I like the way it sounds. So <laughs> Blake, it looks like you're about to say something. That's why. Um, no, I'm just, well, I've just been thinking, you know, Hearing from both of you, I think that there's parallels to the film industry. So, you know, if we want to talk about like the platinum age would be like the very, very first movies where there are really more animated postcards than anything. And then the the second pre-golden age would have been like the silent era of films where they started adding the narrative structure. And the golden age would be like uh, the, the period of films after the jazz singer or Steamboat Willie or the Fleischer sing-along cartoons, if you want the actual first cartoons that had synchronized sound. But that period was synchronized sound up until around the, the advent of color, where they're still trying to figure out the medium. There's no outside regulating body and they're still telling those stories that they want to tell. And like, you know, something like Brian's experiences, there are absolute gems and classics in that period. But if you're going through all of it, there's definite signs of growing pains when people are figuring out the medium, mm-hmm. which is really something else that I guess would be a part of the golden age. I didn't really touch on is that, yeah, just because of the publication format and because they were cranking out these stories and often farmed out to different art teams coming out of one studio, the people working on the story in say detective 12 had no idea who was doing the stories in Detective 13 or necessarily even which particular issue of Detective their story was working on. So they couldn't really do multi-part stories. The only multi-part story I can think of from the Golden Age is one Batman and Two-Face story that was published in two parts three months apart in Detective. It felt almost like someone turned in a 16-page story and they said, no, you don't get 16 pages. But... You know, they can't just chop it in the middle, so they redrew it for splash pages and just bought themselves more time. So it wasn't even continued next issue. It it took a couple months before they came back to it. There were others, but there's so few that your your rule stands. I mean, the, the, the exceptions that prove the rule that this was not something you did. It was tell continued stories. Yeah. And go back real quick what you said about, like, page length. There is, because I did read the Human Torch. That's uh, actually Human Torch 5B, because he had two issue fives. And that's the one where he fights. That's the famous one where he fights the Submariner, and the Submariner floods New York. And that story does last the entire issue. It was fifty something, almost sixty pages long. But like you said, for the most part, yeah, they were just mini stories. And and some of that, when when they hit the extra page count, a lot of that was because they were coming out of one art studio, or art studios closely related, and they sat down and said, "Hey, I want to tell this story." So that was part of it. The Human Torch team liked what the Submariner team were doing and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So they sat down and said, we normally get eight pages each out of this next comic. And they're typically back to back. 
let's just plan for, you know, 16 pages or whatever that flow right from our pages into your pages and turn it in as one unit. Yeah, because you'd have comics that had full book stories. It's just that when Superman started, that wasn't really a thing. But like All Flash, Green Lantern Quarterly, um, All-Star Comics with the Justice Society of America, those were all full book stories that were divided up into chapters. In the case of Justice Society, like Blaine said, each artist would do his own hero's portion. Or in the case of All Flash, they would just come up with a story structure that had three you know, divisions. And instead of having four 13-page stories, you had four 13-page parts of one story. Now, for me on the Golden Age, and I'm glad I had you guys on here because I had some thoughts on it, but you definitely gave me some new things. Like Blaine, like you reminded me about the, um, about the studio structure. And I didn't think about that, but that's right, that... I mean, it did happen since then, but the Golden Age is really when that studio structure really did happen, where, like you said, it would say Batman by Bob Kane, but it was other people, and Bill Finger, for the most part, <laughs> doing it. As opposed to, let's say... Poor Bill Finger. Yeah, as opposed to, let's say, later on, when, let's say, you were reading a issue of Fantastic Four, and it would say Stanley Jack Kirby. Now, you could debate how who contributed what parts to each one, but... You knew that's who did it, though. No matter what, those are the people involved. However much you want to, percentage you want to give to the two of them, it was them. It wasn't Jack Kirby to giving it to his people and saying, "Draw this and put my name on it." And that's definitely yeah. a part. Of, that's definitely one thing that makes the golden age the golden age. For me, it is like you said with the film thing. Actually, and this is what I was going to say anyway. Is this is when they created the language of comics? You know, when everything that we know—not just conventions, but the way the stories were done—how. How what was used? Was it a word balloon? Did they put thoughts in thought balloons, or did they use little parentheses in regular word balloons? The, you know what? That's how all of that was created and figured out. So by the time you got to the further ages, whether whoever was doing the issues and whoever was doing what, they knew how to do comics, and people reading comics knew how to read the comics. So that for me is the golden age. It's the creation of the language of comics, figuring out how that was going to be done. All right. Um, well, and since that's the Golden Age, what do you think is the end of the Golden Age? Let's jump to Brian first. Oh, real quick, though, actually, the Golden Age, I just wanted to say for anyone listening, if anyone hasn't read any Golden Age and they're interested, now, obviously, Marvel and DC, they have a lot of archives and omnibuses and other things that you can buy. But if you, like Brian, for instance, are not a huge fan of the Golden Age and you want to just dip your toe a little bit, well, of course, um, if you have Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited, they do have several Golden Age stories up there. Uh, Comixology also has several individual issues you could buy for a dollar or two and try them. And the Digital Comics Museum has, for free, pretty much every Golden Age comic story that's in the public domain, which does include a lot of characters that you know of. I mean, pretty much all of Fawcett, which is Captain Marvel, is up there for free. So you can just download that legally and try them out if you're interested in Golden Age comics and see if it's something you like or not. Yep. Plus the uh, the Bart Hill... Daredevil is in there too. Yes. Cool. Yes, I, and I mentioned Scribbly. He's in there too. Oh, Scribbly's in there. I thought Scribbly would be a DC one, so I wasn't sure. His his pre DC work. Because Sheldon may have brought Scribbly with him when he came to work for DC. So his stuff in, um, I think, Famous Funnies, and some other comics is, is on there. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I, I like Digital Comics Museum. They have a lot of fun stuff in there. I've been reading Black Cat and uh, Captain Marvel on there. All right, getting to the end of the Golden Age now, and I'm going to start with Brian on this one. What is the end of the Golden Age? And I guess for you, it would be the Silver Age that's next, right? So what's the end of the Golden Age and why? 
Well, the as far as the end of the Golden Age, um, and this is for me pretty easy to to, to suss out and see. As uh, I think it was John pointed out, uh, I, I, I forget. I'm forgetting now who said what because my brain don't work so good no more. Um, uh, the, by you, you get to the 19 early 1950s, superheroes are not. It, it, as as Blaine pointed out, they were still learning how to tell stories in this medium. As as, as they were figuring out the language of comics, and as because I said before, this was all really just a subset of the larger pulp adventure magazine tradition. Um, superheroes were just one more type of pulp hero. They were just you know Doc Savage with uh, alien powers or whatever. By this early 1950s, you'd had 15 years or so of these stories being told in this exploding print medium that was demanding just content, content, content. And you're right, the the, the creators by the, the early 1950s had just run out of ways to tell stories of you know this crook robbed a bank or 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 murdered a judge or you know whatever. And this pulp adventure hero, be he a superhero or whatever, had to figure out a way to apprehend him and deliver him to justice or whatever. There had just been the superhero thing as it existed in the Golden Age had utterly run its course. And as John pointed out, there really was not much going on in the way of superheroes anymore by the early 1950s. So the natural death of that first wave of superhero comics plus the seduction of the innocent being published in 1954 and just taking this already floundering scene or tradition, whatever you, however you want to look at it and just giving it a, a gut punch and a kick in the head. Um, that really killed what we would think of as any sort of continuity in the golden age kind of dead for me. Okay. John. I have a hard time thinking in terms of end of ages and more in terms of start of ages. So well, it's pretty much the same thing, really. <laughs> well, well, oh, you didn't tell me that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, I am going to disagree on that. I, I think okay. that I think that each age tends to run its course and does, you know, keeps doing its own thing until that doesn't really do so well anymore. And it might be a little while before some new initiative, a new movement comes along. So things that ended the Golden Age. I think World War II ending was the first death knell of the Golden Age. Canceling the superheroes, Golden Age is all but kaput. Um, Seduction of the Innocent, killing the crime, crime comic genre, and basically killing the comic industry as a reputable profession was really key in, in putting all that to bed. At the same time, a lot of the new ways of thinking and new efforts to tell stories within restrictions that came as a result of the comics code is what led us to the Silver Age. So I actually, I think we have a little bit, I'm not going to say to thank Wortham for, I think that's too strong a word, but I think it's. I think we should acknowledge that we got our Silver Age as a result of some of those events. But the end of the Gold Age, if I had to put my pin on it, the last issue of All Star Comics had the Justice Society of America in it. So, um, 
April. So All Star Comics. 57, April, uh, no, February, March, 1951. Yeah. That wasn't from memory, don't give me credit. I had written down All Star Western 58, April, May 51. So I was just figuring out what was the two months beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> don't give me credit for knowing that automatically. <laughs> That's not my head. I it was tattooed on the inside of your eyelids. Yeah, wow, you're really at you're really bad at this omniscient host thing. You you gotta take more credit. You gotta you gotta sell it, man. Come on. Oh yeah, but I can edit this all out. Don't worry about that. Oh, 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 yeah. right. Oh, if, if any podcast host should have the Infinity Gems on hand to have access to all this information, <laughs> yeah. it should be out. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but it's over there. I don't want to go over there. It's fine. The dog has it. He's chewing. He's happy. But it's like a power ring. As long as you're close to it, you can still control it. Okay. And that would explain why all the cars outside are turning to giant milk bones. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Robert mm. Culp. <laughs> All right, Flame. Yeah. So, what about you? Either beginning, uh, either what you know, the end of the golden age or beginning of the next. Uh, yeah, I would say. I, again, I I focus the ages on what kind of creative freedoms and technology the creators have access to. So, while John has a point about the decay of the superhero sales, I'll also say you know the firmest point in that fuzzy line is 1954 with the release of seduction of the innocent and the creation of the comics code authority which is where you have this third party group coming in much like the Hayes code of movies saying okay there's really you know we don't have the gpgpg 13 you know rnc 17 that the u.s movie industry has now or equivalent up here in canada anything like that it was approved not approved so everything became you could say somewhat watered down, but it wasn't just, you know, things we think are fine. It's got to be on this very specific list and you cannot have any content like this or this or this or this, which put sort of the straps on them. And with the public perception of the seduction of the innocent, it shifted the target audience. So a lot of the Golden Age comics weren't necessarily same, aimed at seven and eight year olds, although the major publishers would be very cognizant of the fact that seven and eight year olds were picking these up. So it was, you know, more like Pixar these days where it's appropriate for all ages, but can entertain any age if your mind is open to the medium. In the, at least in the beginning of the Silver Age, I think that kicked off with them saying, okay, you know, there, there's accusations that these are bad for kids, so let's change every single thing we publish to be not just appropriate for, but geared and aimed squarely at the kids. So this is when, you know, Superman being one of the surviving comics had a bunch of bizarre covers because they were soliciting cover ideas from their readers and then having their creators right around it. You couldn't have vampires of the horror comics from EC comics anymore. Most of those horror titles were gone. Crime was depicted very, very differently. It could not be glorified. You could not have corrupt officials. There was nothing that made you question authority. It really, really changed the rules for what creators were and were not allowed to do. And to me, that was the not just the beginning of the Silver Age, but the defining era of the entire Silver Age is the Comics Code Authority at its most powerful saying, this is in, this is out. 
Yeah, for me, for the Golden Age, like I said, I like the Atomic Age after, partially because I like the word Atomic. But also, to me, the Golden Age, and the reason I have the Atomic Age is because, for me, that um, the Golden Age I have ending about 1950. Because a lot of it's like what John said, all those, the big books that really popular things, which was the superhero, all ended around 1949, 50, 51. You know, at that time period, you know, they start becoming Captain America turned into Captain America's Weird Tales. And then you have, so that to me ends the Golden Age and starts, like I said, the Atomic Age. Because to me, the Atomic Age is a very short, but very combustible, and a lot of stuff happened. I mean, for one thing, I can definitely see a difference art-wise and story-wise, if you look at the stories from, like, 1951, 52, as opposed to the earlier Golden Age works, it doesn't look like what you imagine Golden Age art looking like, or Golden Age comics. So there's definitely a difference there. It Obviously, it's a change more in content, as opposed to superhero, you have a lot of these other genres coming up, especially with EC Comics, crime and horror, but then that led to the whole comics code and gutting EC completely, with the exception of Mad, and really, like you said, like Blaine said, changing the entire way of comics was done. It wasn't, I think it was Brian said, it wasn't a respectable, or not that it was respectable before, but it definitely became much less of a respectable place to work. And like you said, Blaine, they kind of made everything go, well, let's not make it just safe for kids. Let's make it only for kids. And to me, that's that atomic age, is this like really shot up high of of content with the EC books of like how well they were done to the ultimate very low of let's make sure this is only good for five-year-olds and I have that ending with the beginning of the Silver Age as far as I'm concerned with uh, well this one again has an issue showcase four because that kind of like Superman kicked off a whole new renaissance not just of content but of sales and how and you know it helped the media I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away. It's time for feedback, and this time we are talking about the feedback from episode 103, Infinity Countdown Part 5, Comic Book Logic. On Facebook, the post about that episode was liked and shared by Jesse Starcher, Vinny DiCostello, Gene Hendricks, and Pat Sampson. On Twitter, it was liked and retweeted by Dot Spidey, Into the Weird, What Would Cap Do, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Jason Snick Venable, Freeform Network, Billy Dees, Adriano, Alex, Unpacking the Horror of Power Pack, Tomb Priest, Podcrasher, Brian Z, Thanos, 
and adfreetalkradio.com. On Tumblr, the post about the episode was actually liked by somebody. So thank you to gx-brains-5ds. And speaking of Tumblr names that are a pain to pronounce, we got a few more followers on Tumblr to thank. So thank you to joinu0, sure, <laughs> Beaches Come, Wild Wicked Cheese, Tittletulo74, and Kissing Pink. So if you want to hear your name mentioned, or if you just have something to say to us, on Tumblr, we're on resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. On Twitter, you can follow us at at AdamThanosPod. On Facebook, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. We'll pop up. You can always leave an iTunes review, because that is awesome. And you can email us at resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. And speaking of emailing us, we do have an email we're about to do. Uh, me and Joe recorded this. We got halfway through. Not so much because of the length of the email, but, well, because of us. You'll see. Here we go. And we do have an email to read this time. And to help me along, Joey's here. Hey, Joey. Hey. All right. Yeah, so yeah. This, here he is on his own. All right, so this email is from Kati Pinheiro, who has written to us before. Uh, the subject is the return of yet more lengthy thoughts and opinions, ending with a discussion on the narrative merits of capes. All right, so what I think we're going to do is we'll read a little bit, and if we have anything to say about it, we'll you know pause in there and say what we have to say about it instead of reading the whole thing at once. Kati Pinheiro, I like that name. Yeah, uh, from Portugal. Oh, Portugal, cool. Yep. Do they have, uh, is it true that they have, um, what was it in Portugal? They legalized all drugs. I have no idea. That's what I heard. I heard in Portugal they legalized all drugs. They just figure it's, it's just easier to, to legalize it or decriminalize it. Probably decriminalize it. You can't just sell, like, you can't just sell heroin on the stores. But I figured, I think they just figure it's easier just to decriminalize it and help uh, deal with the people who have problems. It's probably cheaper to just have places to help deal with people with problems instead of having a whole law, law force and things. So, Kati Pinheiro, let me know. Let Perfect me know person to answer true. that question. Yeah. All right. So, greetings, Al. Took me a while, but more feedback is here. You begged for it, now you're going to have it, damn it. This is a big one, but try to see it in a positive way. If the show wasn't good, I wouldn't spend the time to write all this. It's my thought on that, at least, and I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Ooh, thoughts are thoughts, you know? There's no bad thoughts. They're just thoughts. True. Constructive right, so. criticism is, is just as good as... Uh, criticism is good either way. How about that? <laughs> yeah, but I would prefer constructive over negative. Yeah, constructive. Not negative. Not like, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> but constructive, like, I... I you suck because that. of these reasons. Yeah, try not to suck. If uh, if you do these things, you won't suck so much. There you go. Yeah. All right, back to the email. Okay, so I know nothing of these more recent runs. Thus, I have yet to listen to episode 101. So just so you know, by the way, Joe, episode 101 was um, one of our last Infinity Countdown episodes. But I went back and listened to your first episode about this event. Here's some thoughts on that and on a few stray episodes, starting with episode 94, Infinity Countdown Part 1. I'm just basing this on your synopsis. 
Oh, actually, before I do that, so just so we remember, in that episode, we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy issue 150, Infinity Countdown Adam Warlock, and Infinity Countdown Prime. Okay. So those are the issues we talked about then. All right, back to her. I'm just basing this on your synopsis and some images I found online of these issues this time. I love the beginning of this episode. I like interruptions and the occasional screw-up. It gives it a more human and casual feel without taking away any of the professionalism from research and the actual discussion of topics. That's, it's tr- That's kind of a nice way to say. <laughs> you, you know, you could clean it up a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> if you don't clean it up, it could, it could be a little bit more professional. But that's kind of cool that it's not. I probably put an outtake in the beginning, that's why. Yeah, right, yeah. It's charming reminds me that these are actual human beings talking, not just disembodied entities flowing in the ether. That's right. We are human. I am a human being. So are you, right? Yes. Yes. We I are am real, a human being. I am we a human. are real human beings. Yes. Not robots. Not robots. No. And with that, I got to say, I'm sorry, Al. This may forever sour our blo- this blooming relationship, but I have to sigh off your brother on this matter. Your boy Adam isn't looking gold. Definitely just tan. So we discussed. It was that, we had a discussion whether whether he had uh, whether he was tan or gold. Yeah, this is the Adam Warlock one shot, the one where he's talking to Kang and going through like uh, they have that time loop. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember, he's like in Kang's base. We were pointing out all the stuff that Kang had collected. Yeah, and then Adam goes to uh, ancient Egypt and gets stabbed in the back and has to wait, go in a cocoon until the future. Yeah, and that's when you were saying he didn't look very gold. He looked more tan. Oh, okay. Good. Well, they agree with you. The point is is that I was right yet again. Let's not go with yet again. And about this new look, I don't want to put down the artist or anything, but I'm really not feeling the overall design, and I agree with basically everything you two pointed out. I guess my biggest problem is that every change seems for the worst. They build on top of one another and ultimately, ultimately make Warlock look pretty normal and bland when he's been anything but. For example, too much accessorizing and useful things, like pouches and knee pads. I never thought I would see our boy wearing a utility belt. The staff is also a bit bland. Just a bare stick, basically. It doesn't need to be anything too over the top either to be memorable. Maybe just add a small detail, like his old eagle head one. Your brother also mentions the haircut change that makes him look like every other guy. I miss the more swoopy feathered hair. It definitely gave him a distinct look. Hopefully his hair will grow while he's stuck inside that tomb in Egypt, which was a great moment. Spoiler, it do- it doesn't. Yeah, everything stays the same. Yeah. Too bad he could cut- came out with like really long hair and really long fingernails. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Kind of looking like the fingernails, looking like um the old version of Dracula from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Where you had like the th- fingernails were, like what, like three or four inches long, maybe longer. Sure. <laughs> Wait, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. He has long hair, and then he cuts it, and then it's back to normal. Yeah. Like his normal long hair look. He just shakes it off, and it you know, all falls off his head, except for what he wants. Yeah. Back to the long, the long hair, not the short hair. I agree with her. Agree, what's it? Kati? Kati, right? Yeah. I agree with Kati agreeing with me. I don't like it when... Uh, characters are homogenized and uh, i think that's the right word Um, yeah and they do that a lot and it it just you know it's not cool (laughs) no you want some uniqueness it's like you know who does that 
a lot, and he's uh, is Bendis, and I I love Bendis's, uh, you know, I love Civil War, loves Bendis's stories, but he starts he kind of like was big on homogenizing everybody, making everybody all of a sudden everybody's the funny guy. It wasn't just Spider Man; everybody's a Joker, and then they take that formula and they do it like people ran with it because I guess you know. I think I'm in a minority there because people love it because that's the whole formula of the Marvel movies. Everybody's a jokester. There's everybody has a quick wit and people seem to love it. But for me, it just homogenizes all the characters. Okay. So yeah, Joey going with that. I also think when Jim Lee went over at DC and they did the rebirth and he did the designs for a lot of the characters. Jim Lee, sorry. Jim Lee is the guy who wrote, uh, or drew the X-Men in the 90s, right? One of the big guys, yeah. Like right after... Um, Claremont. Claremont, okay. Did he write or draw? Or both? He plotted some of the issues. <clears throat> he plotted? I don't, he, I don't think he ever wrote them, scripted them, like with the dialogue, but he did... I know for a little while he was doing the plotting, like this is the story that's going to happen. And, and then drew. somebody else... Yeah, and then somebody else just put in the words and the captions. Okay. And the, You know, the dialogue. Okay. But yeah, so 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 he worked with like, I mean, he did have, he had a say in the, um, he drew and he had a say in the story. Yeah, uh, he's the one that put Wolverine back in the yellow and blue costume, I believe, and I believe he's the one that designed Gambit. Well, he's cool. I'm a big fan uh, of Jim Lee already. <laughs> Gambit. So I just, I just sent you the picture when they did the re- uh, new Fifty Two of DC. He redesigned a lot of the costumes. Mm-hmm. And it's fine for one or two of them, but if you look at the picture I just sent you of the Justice League, doesn't it all look like they shop at the same tailor? Yeah. It's like, you could see the whole thing about the whole extra lines and everything, so it makes Bat- makes look like Batman, Superman, Flash, Green Lantern all went to the same person to get their costumes done. And it's like, really? It's like, uh, that just kind of makes, you know, it's like, then the origin should be them all getting their powers together and becoming heroes together at the same time, not separate origins. Yeah, so they'd have to at least discuss, like, hey, do you go to the same person I go to? Yeah, he's the only guy who sells costumes. Yeah, it's like the original X-Men, you know, those original X-Men costumes, the yellow and blue ones? Yeah. It'd be like, instead of Professor X giving it to all of them once they joined the school, they all came to the school and they all happened to have those costumes already. Yeah, it's all too neat, you know, it's just, you know, everything, I guess, like, they want them to make, kind of make them look... Yeah, similar, but it just makes it too neat, you know. It might look cool because like they all belong together, but um, maybe so as a picture, you know, it looks, you know, they look, you know, organized better. But that's not what it is. They're they're not a team. They're a team that came together. They're, they're a bunch of, a, a bunch of individuals that came together. They didn't come together and then become superheroes. Yeah, it's like the Avengers, mm-hmm. not the uh, to make a Marvel. It's like yeah. the Avengers, not the X Men. Yes, exactly. Or at least the original X Men. Yeah, yeah. The original X Men were brought together and then made a team. The Avengers were already all random superheroes that came together. On a good side, they kept his usual color scheme, and I think the skull is a nice little touch and cute callback. It's like Adam has grown fond of his little skull brooch and decided to keep it around as a nice keepsake. I like that he has a red cape back as it puts the warlock feel on warlock, and it's always great for dramatic poses, making him more of a majestic figure. But even this cape looks too useful with the buttons on it. 
The cape is actually something that I missed from Starlin's last batches of Thanos graphic novels, to be honest. So he's, yeah, he is a warlock, but he's not a warlock, right? They just call him Adam Warlock. Did they ever discuss that? Uh, uh, it gets a little uh, vague. <laughs> it gets a little vague at times. He'll say to people, I am a true warlock. I am a master of the earth, air, fire, and water. And he'll do things like vanish and reappear and not compete. You know, like people not really vanish, like you see him teleport. But there's like one or two sequence. Like there's this one sequence that Starlin did where it's him taking out a whole bunch of guards on the ship. You just all of a sudden like see a guard walk into shadow and get knocked out of it, or a guard at the top of the stairs get punched down, and then the other guard starts to run up and then he gets punched from behind. So it's not like he practices magic, but I don't know, I guess he's sort of pseudo mystical. Got it. It's a little inconsistent. Yeah, it's a little vague. But I think it's meant to be. I don't think I think it's meant to be like slightly vague enough that he can do some cool stuff, but not so vague that you know it's not like he has phenomenal cosmic power. Like he's not on the range of like Doctor Strange or anything. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and Adam Warlock's powers were always vague. Yeah, right? you're never really hundred percent sure what the hell he can do. Yeah, but they're like a little vague, so like you can still believe him being taken out by people because it's not like he's super, super, super powerful. It's like on the level of Doctor Strange, right? No, I would definitely not put him at Doctor Strange's level of, of at least magical stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, but like, well, like magical stuff. A little lower than that, definitely. Well, like, yeah, magical stuff, up. but he doesn't just have straight-up magical powers, right? It's just... Yeah. Uh, yeah, he also has, like, strength and stuff, and, I mean, he can fly through space on his own. Yeah. But see, but even with all those powers, he's not at Doctor Strange's level? Oh, I guess, well, Doctor, I mean, Strange, I guess Doctor Strange is really powerful. Yeah, he's incredibly powerful. Yeah, never mind. It, it all depends on when we're talking about Doctor Strange. You know, the Doctor Strange we read in the uh, for for the Infinity Countdown, not that powerful. Oh yeah, because he's not the master of. Yeah, he's not the master of the Mystic Arts at that point. What about the Supreme? When he was Sorcerer Supreme, yeah, yeah, he's still he that. When he well, I don't know if he still is, but when he was Sorcerer Supreme, yeah, he was incredibly powerful. Oh, but Sorcerer Supreme is not as good as. Ma- master of the Magic. Mystic Ma- Arts? Mystic Arts, right? I think that's basically one and the same. No, oh, I thought it was, wasn't it? I thought, like, he was Sorcerer Supreme. He always was Sorcerer Supreme. But then when the guy who trained him or something like that, when he, yeah, like, didn't he die or something? And then, then... The other uh, way around. So... Sorcerer Supreme is the, is the title he got from the Ancient One. Okay, so he was Master of the Magic... Yeah, I guess you can call him a master of the mystic arts. Mystic but yeah, arts. Sorcerer Supreme is basically the sorcerer of this, you know, dimension. Yeah, so didn't he get more powerful when he got that title? Yeah, I guess he was. Well, yeah, he was more powerful when he had that title, but I don't know if he has that now. Yeah, so then master, master of the mystic arts is, or is it just another, uh, is it just another weapon? I think master of the mystic arts is just kind of a nickname type thing. Oh like, no! Incredible, oh yeah! Like Incredible cross. Hulk, or like calling super, like calling Batman the Dark Knight Detective, or calling Superman the Man of Tomorrow or the Man of Steel. Oh, I thought I thought that meant like I thought that was like the equivalent of him getting his like black belt. No, yeah. no, Sorcerer Supreme is a title, and means he is you know the most powerful sorcerer. But Mister Mystic Arts is like calling Daredevil the Man Without Fear. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just, you know, a cool little nickname or tagline. 
that he stole from his master. You know, Doctor Strange, master of the mystic arts. Well, it's kind of messed up. His master dies, and he takes his he takes his nickname. Oh, I don't think his master had the nickname Master of the Mystic Arts. His his the ancient one was just the Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, I thought somebody else had that nickname when he took it from him. No, no, no. They no. That's not even. I don't. Th- I don't know if they've ever called him that in the in the series itself. That's just on the titles and stuff. I have so much to learn about Doctor Strange. Anyway, the email. I'm sorry. That's okay. I do appreciate them trying to combine elements from different eras into his costume as a sort of homage, but overall feels off to me and just takes me out of it. He doesn't look like the uncanny cosmic powerhouse that he is. Just your normal average young Earth lad with a homemade costume ready for a convention. If there's only one or two things, I can give it more of a pass, but they kind of pile on top of each one and just turn me off. Maybe I'll warm up to it in time and give the story a shot. I used to think his 70s costume with the red Speedos, weirdly cut tunic, cape, golden boots, and belt was super odd and a bit goofy, and now it's become my favorite incarnation of his. As much as I enjoy some of the later costumes, I find that they all cover him up so much that you kind of forget he's this odd, gleaming, golden man-god, unless you're looking at his face. Yeah, that 70s one is one of my... I do like that 70s one a lot. When he's fighting the Magus and all that back then. He shows more skin. Yeah, you can see his arms and legs, his arms a bit more, at least. Yeah, we like the He-Man look. <laughs> right? He looks more like He-Man there. He looks like he could be, well, his original costume is more He-Man-ish, but this one also can be, this other one they're talking about could also fit in with He-Man, I think. Just needs a bit more fur around the shorts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did have hairy shorts. The whole thing with Kang sounds like it could turn out to be fu- a fun and interesting series of events. My only exposure to the character was the side plot of him teaming up with Doctor Doom in Infinity War. And although it's been a while since I read it, I still remember having a lot of fun with their ch- clashing egos there. So I'd definitely like to see and learn more from him. From what you and Joe talked and the brief synopsis I read on Kang, he sounds like a wicked, insane character in a good way. Does... So Kati Pinheiro is in Portugal. She still lives in Portugal, as far as we know. Yeah, she's, so, never, she's, she's never been in Chicago because yeah. when I read this and I, I uh, when she said wicked insane, I go, is she from Chicago? <laughs> right. Isn't that the only people that say wicked is Chicago? People? That would be. I thought that was more of a Boston thing. I thought it was Chicago. Um, I don't know. I agree to get disagree unless we can look it up. I'm not looking it up. <laughs> I stand with Chicago, though. And. I do like Kang a lot. If you want anything else of Kang that I think is really good, although it can get a bit weird because there's a lot of time travel involved, read the Avengers Forever 12-issue miniseries. There's a lot of stuff of Kang in there. You'll get a really good taste for Kang. Yeah, I like Kang. But it is a crazy time travel miniseries, so if that's not your thing, be warned. Then you probably don't like Kang that much, then. Well, that's true. Hmm. Anyway. I love when Joe reacts to some good old comic book insanity, like the Magus' afro. His astonishment and confusion is so entertaining and a highlight in the episodes he's in. I had a lot of fun with his reactions and cascades of questions during episode 38 on the Silver Surfer TV show. I never even thought about the possibility that the surfer was actually just wearing a silver skin. This new acquired knowledge has changed my life in ways I've yet to fully grasp. Yeah, it takes a long time to process that. Plus the afro. You remember the Magus' afro? Yeah, it's funny looking. 
I love that thing, though. It's my favorite. And this is just me reading too much into it because it's never stated out loud. I like to think in my head canon that maybe one of the reasons why Warlock was so eager to help the people of that planet, besides having seen the glimpse of goodness in them, was that he related to the fact that, like them, he was a science experiment whose creators tried to quickly terminate and dispose of without a second thought when both strayed away from their intended purpose. Maybe seeing the high evolutionary so eager to end all life with the press of a button triggered some PTSD-like reaction that made him decide those people deserve better, and at the very least, a second chance to prove their worth. You know, I never really thought about that, but that's actually a pretty good idea. I'm trying to read this again. But what they're saying is, in the original Warlock series, when he's on Counter-Earth fighting the Man Beast and all that, and the high evolutionary keeps wanting to destroy it, mm-hmm. and they're saying is that, well, isn't that similar to when Warlock was created and he didn't want to do his creators wanted, so they wanted to destroy him too right away? Like, maybe that's why he was so eager, willing to help them, these, these, you know, this planet, was because it was the same thing like him. I never even thought about that possibility. I like the idea of a headcanon. That, I, I never heard of that expression before. Oh, that's yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, no, oh, yeah, headcanon. That's something we, we talk about a lot, cause especially me and John have talked about, especially <laughs> with, like, things that keep changing a bit. It's like you kind of have to decide what's in your headcanon. Like, well, what, you know, sometimes it's easiest just to go, you know what? This story was stupid. It's not really referenced again, so I'm just going to ignore it and pretend it never happened. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of yeah. have to do So you're, like, editing yourself. Yeah. It's like, well, and especially unless, like, it really counts. Like, for instance, there was a story. If you, I don't know if you read it, but there was a story in Spider-Man uh, before they did the whole brand new day where they got rid of the marriage. Where it turned out Gwen Stacy had kids with the Green Goblin. <laughs> I like that. With the uh, oh, wait, with uh, with Norman the, Osborne, Norman. Okay. What gave birth? And he took the kids and did whatever genetic things, crazy genetic things with him while he was pretending to be dead. Because remember, they retconned it that he wasn't dead really. Oh, he just pretended to be. He well, he was really gravely injured. He went to Europe to heal and just stayed there and let everyone think he was dead still. Okay. So he did genetic things to them, so the kids were aged. So of course they could be old enough. You know, they'd be like in their early twenties now. So a lot of people didn't like that. Why not? But guess what? Oh. You know, she just bangs. You know, she just bangs the green go- Norman Osborn behind his back. Well, that's you know, it <laughs> makes her but, more interesting, doesn't it? Well, I think it makes her interesting. Well, that's it. Doesn't matter though. That that's not the point. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. The point is, a lot of people didn't like it. But yeah. it's also not a story that's like those characters have not been back. It's not really referenced again. So a lot of people are like, you know what? Doesn't count. Never happened. As far as I'm concerned, didn't happen. Was it not a good story overall? It was not accepted well. I mean, oh. yeah. So once it's. We the, uh, once we get the um, Marvel Limited working again, I can tell you where it is. You could read it if you want to. No. <laughs> I don't need to read it. I just like the idea of it, you know. It's also a good way to use that for, like, theories of stuff. Like, uh, there's a lot of theories of things that aren't brought up, but are um, hinted at or maybe not finished. So people are like, well, in my head, can at least, you know, until they tell me otherwise, I'm going with this. I'm going with this. Yeah. You know, especially if they change time a lot. You know, if you're talking about stories or let's say they've changed the past where, like, now this, this didn't happen. Like, uh, when DC did Crisis on Infinite Earths years ago, mm-hmm. you know, and they changed everything. 
you know, when they got rid of all the alternate universes and they just said it was only one universe and that's it. Yeah. But they also changed a bunch of st- other stuff. Like, for instance, Wonder Woman didn't show up back in the day. You know, like Superman and Batman still, you know, Justice League had still been around for years, they were saying. But Wonder Woman wasn't. Wonder Woman was a brand new character now. And it's like, well, the problem is Wonder Woman's a founding member of the Justice League. Uh, so how does that work? Yeah, am I supposed to disregard everything And DC that said, happened? no, the Black Canary was there instead. And it's like, all right, well, you know, it's a woman. But Black Canary has that canary cry and knows judo. Wonder Woman has super strength and can fly in the visible jet and the, uh, the lasso of truth. So... I mean, you could say it works because it's not like they're reprinting all those. You know, it's not like they were redoing all those stories and reissuing them saying, here's the story of Black Canary. You kind of have like if you're talking about of people, you kind of have to go figure out, well, how would it work? If yeah. Black Canary was there instead of Wonder Woman. So that's kind of like a headcanon thing. It's like, OK, well, how does this work then? Yeah. You know? Well, maybe this person did the other stuff or maybe that happened. I'm wondering, uh, does she know like real judo or is it like fake judo like in uh Austin Powers, where he goes like judo chop, because judo is really more um, like uh, how do you say it? Like tosses. Yeah, I know she over knows the judo. shoulder toss. It's a lot of over the shoulder toss. I think initially Black Canary was judo, but that might have been also like in the forties or the sixties when you know they thought judo was you know judo chop. Yeah, judo chop. But now Black Canary is pretty proficient in most martial arts. Oh, okay. So she's like a. She's, yeah, she knows all, all of them. They, they generally, they, it's generally been, you know, accepted, like, she would be in the top, definitely top 20, maybe top 10 in, like, D.C. Of, like, martial artists. Who's somebody that's, like, above her? Or in her level? Uh, Batman, Lady Shiva, Richard Dragon, uh, back, the, the second Batgirl, Cassandra Cain, the one that didn't speak. Uh, the second Green Arrow, Connor Hawk, Oliver Queen's son. What about Nightwing? Um, martial art, I don't know if he'd be in the top 10, maybe 20. His is more acrobatics. Like, the three Robins, the different, you know, those those first three Robins, their main thing, like, Dick Grayson, I mean, they all were good fighting, but Jason was more of a fighter, Dick Grayson was more of an acrobat, and Tim was more of the uh, brains. Jason more of a fighter, like a brawler, right? Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. So, like, Dick was a good acro- fighter, but it's also because he uses the acrobatics a lot. You know, so it's a different kind of thing. He, in a straight-up, you know, straight-up martial artist, he's not as good as some of the other ones. But he's still obviously good enough. Not in the top, I wouldn't say in the top 10. Maybe 20 or 25. But, like, that second Batgirl, she would definitely be, she was definitely up in the top 10. In Canary, I'm not sure 100%. Somewhere between, definitely in the top 20, maybe the 10. We were not supposed to leave. Four million years ago, two armies were stranded on a world not their own. Waking in the modern day, their ages-old alien conflict revives on the planet Earth. Scouring this new world for resources and safeguarding the native life from their war, their one goal remains. We have to go back. The stories of these Autobots, Decepticons, and humans were published in the United Kingdom in a weekly comic book and broadcast as an animated series. 
And now there will be a podcast exploring these chronicles in their entirety. We have to go back to Cybertron. Return to Cybertron, a Transformers UK podcast, coming October 31st. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. So I just want to mention a new thing going on with the podcast. It's not really going to affect the show that much, but you might see it on posts or on the Tumblr page. There's going to be a link to something called The Collective. So The Collective is a very loose-knit podcast network. I guess it's a network. I don't know if we qualify as that, or at least just a group of podcasts that are get together just to talk and also help you know, promote and share each other's things. And I've been invited to join that, which is cool. Also because I didn't really know most of these podcasts before, so these are kind of a whole new world with like different shows. So there will be a link for that in the show notes for each episode, and at least... A promo probably in each episode as well. Uh, we started doing that last episode with the promo for Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. There's a promo this time for Last Sons of Krypton. That's another one of the collective shows. And speaking of which, by the way, if you're looking for other stuff that you can hear me on, I was actually on the most recent episode of Last Sons of Krypton. It came out just last week from when this episode comes out. Episode 28, Matrix and the Fleischer cartoons. So we talked about Action Comics 644 and the Fleischer Studio Superman cartoons from the late 30s, early 40s. But that wasn't the only show I guest starred on. You could also find me on Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, episode 41, where we talked about Power Pack issue 31. That kind of rhymes. And over on the Source Material podcast, episode 246, where we covered the Hellblazer Dangerous Habits trade paperback. And one more. Over on the Fire and Water Network, I joined Shag on the JLI Bwahaha podcast for their most recent Meanwhile episode covering Justice League Annual number 3. And there'll be links for all four of those shows in the notes. So, yeah, I had a busy October. (laughs) Okay, that's all for this time. I just want to mention, since this was recorded, you can also find Golden Age DC Comics on the DC Universe app. That's another place you can easily and cheaply find Golden Age comics to read. All right, we're back next time. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.
and actually, hold on before we go further, because I'm going to send you a picture or something to go along with that argument, but I'd rather not have the clicking on the uh, recording. Cool. Does my voice sound sexy? Thank you for asking me that. I don't want to. I don't want to think about that. Oh well, I was looking. I was trying to go for a sexy voice today. 